Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. We are studying the book of Luke, and I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 10, verse 13. Let's get into it. Now, last time we began with chapter 10 with Jesus sending out the 70 ahead of him with the gospel. And now we will continue with this and with the return of the 70. And also, we're going to begin with a warning to the cities that reject the gospel that the 70 were sent out to give. So let's turn to verse 13 of chapter 10 and let's begin. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So here we have a woe to the impenitent impenitent cities. And with, with verses 13 and 14, we have now Chorazin and Bethsaida. And they are located at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, concentrated his ministry. The comparison with the Phoenician towns of Tyre and Sidon suggests utter rebellion against the Lord, for those two ancient pagan towns suffered drastic judgment for their proud opposition to God and God's people. As Jesus spoke these words, he was reminded of three cities of Galilee, which had been more highly privileged than any others. They had seen him perform his mighty miracles in their streets, and they had heard his gracious teachings, yet they utterly refused him. If the miracles Jesus had done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been in ancient Tyre and Sidon, those seacoast cities would have plunged themselves into the deepest repentance. Because the cities of Galilee were unmoved by Jesus's works, their judgment would be more severe than that of Tyre and Sidon. As a matter of historical fact, Chorazin and Bethsaida have been so thoroughly destroyed that their exact location is not definitely known to this day. Now here I want to take a quick side note here, <clears throat> and I kind of want to explain, we see verses a lot where we have a sackcloth. Well, what is a sackcloth? in biblical ancient times. Well, a sackcloth was a rough, coarse cloth or a bag-like garment that was made out of this cloth. It was usually a black material, and it was worn as a symbol of mourning or repentance. And it was fashioned from goat or camel hair, which gave it the coarse clothness to it. <clears throat> and as it was worn as a sign of mourning or anguish, it was also marked by fasting and sitting on an ash heap. 
And ashes could also symbolize repentance or contrition. The shape of the garment could have been either a loose-fitting sack placed over the shoulders or a loincloth. And the word sack is a transliteration of the Hebrew word rather than a translation in the Bible sackcloth that was often used to symbolize certain actions. Now, in the case of mourning, it was either over a death or another calamity. The Israelites showed their grief by wearing a sackcloth and ashes. And this was done also in instances of confession and, and their grief over sin. Now, sackcloths were often worn by prophets, perhaps to show their own brokenness in the face of their terrible message of judgment and doom. But the word for sackcloth in the Bible also means sack. So we have a story of Joseph. He ordered the sacks of his brothers to be filled with grain. We see this in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 42. And Arispa spread sackcloth on a rock, using it as some type of a bedding material. And we see that in 2 Samuel, chapter 21. But sackcloth was most commonly used as an article of clothing. So just a little food for thought there. When you see sackcloth, we have an understanding of, of what that was and what it was used for or symbolized. So getting back to verses 15 and 16, Capernaum had the high privilege of hearing Jesus preach there frequently, but this privilege guaranteed neither its fame nor its survival. On the contrary, in language like that of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, Jesus graphically portrays Capernaum's fall. He goes on to uh, iterate that reception or rejection of his messengers demonstrates one's attitude to the Lord himself. Capernaum became the hometown of Jesus after he moved from Nazareth. And the city was exalted to heaven in privilege, but it despised its most notable citizen and missed its day of opportunity. So it will be brought down to Hades in judgment. Now, Jesus closed his instructions to the 70 with a statement that they were his ambassadors. To reject them was to reject Christ. To refuse Christ was to refuse God the Father. And this all can be stated as there is probably no stronger language than this in the New Testament about the dignity of a faithful minister's office and the guilt incurred by those who refuse to hear his message. It is language we must remember, which is not addressed to the 12 apostles, but to the 70 disciples of whose names and in subsequent history we know nothing about. To reject an ambassador or to treat him with contempt is an affront to the prince who commissioned and sent him and whom he represents. The apostles and the 70 disciples were the ambassadors and the representatives of Christ. And they who rejected and despised them, in fact, rejected and despised Christ himself. So now we're going to have the 70 return with joy. So let's turn back to our scriptures to verse 17. 
And then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And just another quick side note here before we start visiting about verses 17 to 19. In the New Testament, when we see Jesus start a sentence that says, Behold, what is going to follow after that word is something you want to pay attention to. It's very important. So every time you see behold, be prepared that what's coming after that you want to take particular interest in. Okay, now verses 17, and I'll look at 17 and 18 here together. The messengers returned to Jesus, and they were filled with joy. The power of the kingdom was effective against demons, just as it was in the ministry of Christ. Now, exorcism must be done in the name of Christ, that is, on Christ's authority. When the disciples exercise demons, the forces of evil are shaking, symbolizing the defeat of Satan himself. So verse 19, to have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions relates to the victorious work of Christ, who according to the first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, was to bruise the head of the serpent, the devil. The ultimate implication of overcoming all the power of the enemy is to be victorious over the one through whose temptation sin entered into humanity. And the Lord had given his disciples authority against the forces of evil. They were granted authority, uh, they were granted the immunity from harm during their mission as well. And it is true of all God's servants. They are protected. Now in verse 20 here, this call to rejoice in, in the supreme blessing of assurance of heaven is one of Jesus's great sayings. Though the disciples may also rejoice in spiritual victories. The idea of the names of God's faithful people being written down in heaven in a book is common in biblical writings. Yet they were not to rejoice in their power over spirits, but rather in their own salvation. This is the only recorded instance when the Lord told his disciples not to rejoice. There are subtle dangers connected with success in Christian service, whereas the fact that our names are written in heaven reminds us of our infinite debt to God and to his Son. It is safe to rejoice in salvation by grace. Empowered to become the children of God is to be valued more than a power to work a miracle. Saving graces are more to be rejoiced in than spiritual gifts. little food for thought there. So, with the time we have left, let's take a look at Jesus rejoices in the Spirit with verse 21. So turn back to your Bibles with me. And verse 21 begins, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. 
Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Now, Jesus, in verse 21, words relate to the time in which the power of the kingdom is revealed. Jesus himself participates in the joy that characterizes the day of God's salvation, a theme established at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He combines joy with thanksgiving on the occasion of God's mighty saving work. A remarkable thing stressed by Jesus is not that the wise do not understand God's revelation, but that the simple do. The children are those whose open, trusting attitude makes them receptive to God's word. Rejected by the mass of people, Jesus looked upon his humble followers, or followers and rejoiced in the Spirit, thanking the Father for his matchless wisdom. The 70 were not the wise and prudent men of this world. They were not the intellectuals or the scholars. They were mere babes, but they were babes with faith. They were they had devotion and they had unquestioning obedience. The intellectuals were to be wise, knowing, they were too clever if you will, for their own good. Their pride blinded them to the true worth of God's beloved Son. It is through babes that God can work most effectively. And our Lord was happy for all those whom the Father had given to him for this initial success of the 70, which foretold the eventual downfall of Satan. The emphasis on joy combines with another subject of Luke's spatial interest, the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. And these verses show, one, that God's sovereignty in imparting revelation, it shows the relationship between the Father and the Son, and lastly, the privilege the disciples had of participating in this instant of messianic revelation and salvation. And in verse 22, all things were delivered to the Son by his Father, whether things in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. God put the entire universe under the authority of his Son. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. There is a mystery connected with the incarnation that no one but the Father can fathom. How God could become man and dwell in a human body is beyond the comprehension of human creatures. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son will to reveal him. God too is above human understanding. The Son knows him perfectly, and the Son has revealed him to the weak and the despised people who have faith in him. Those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. The Son does reveal the Father, but man's mind always breaks itself 
to pieces when he attempts to unravel the insoluble enigma of Christ's personal glory. The knowledge God gives is committed directly to the Son. And this explains why Jesus spoke with authority in contrast to the scribes who received their ideas through tradition that was passed down from rabbi to rabbi. And Jesus' sayings confirm other teachings in the synoptics and in John about the fatherhood of God and the unique sonship of Christ. And nothing rejoices the heart of the Lord Jesus so much as the progress of the gospel and the conversion of souls to Christ. Christ's joy is a solid, substantial joy. It's an inward joy. And finally, here in verses 23 and 24 to wrap up this section, privately, the Lord told his disciples that they were living in a day of unprecedented privilege. The Old Testament prophets and kings had desired to see the days of the Messiah, but had not seen them. The Lord Jesus here claims to be the one to whom the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the Messiah. The disciples were privileged to see the miracles and to hear the teachings of the Messiah, the hope of Israel. And Jesus congratulates the disciples privately on participating in this revelation. The woes that Jesus pronounced earlier on those whose pride will be broken in verses 13 to 15 are balanced by the blessings of those granted salvation. And with that, we will stop there for today. Next time, we are going to get into the parable of the Good Samaritan. So be sure to come back for that. And until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.